Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is sponsored by Laneberg Wine. Make this Christmas really special by giving a gift of premium quality English wine from Laneberg Wine, the UK's most northerly wine, based in Tyneside. You can order online at lanebergwine.com forward slash shop, where you can build your own gift to make it unique to your loved one. Use the code PURPOSEMADE to get 15% off your first gift order. Note, applies to orders over £30. Shipping costs are added on and may be significant if ordering from abroad. You're listening to the Purpose Made Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring the fundamental topics and key drivers for change within our global society today. This series is brought to you by Peter Bell, founder of Purpose Made, a strategic consultancy specializing in post-pandemic change and organizational transformation. Our experience of pandemics and our experience of major public health incidents is that you need to be open and transparent with the public. You need to be frank with the public because often difficult decisions have to be taken, as we've seen with, with the shutdowns and everything ever, you know, throughout this. And taking people on this difficult journey means that you have to have trust. Original conversations, purpose made for you. So sit back, relax, and we do hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Purpose Made podcast. In today's podcast, we speak to the amazing Professor John Ashton, CBE, one of the world's leading experts in the field of public health and author of the book, Blinded by Corona. Professor Ashton is a British doctor and academic who has held positions at the University of Southampton, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, the University of Liverpool School of Medicine, and also as a regional director of public health for the northwest of England for 13 years. On February 1st, 2020, Professor Ashton was one of the first voices to sound the alarm of a global pandemic for an interview held with British broadcaster Sky News. During the interview, he mapped out the need for urgent and swift action at a time the UK were witnessing 83 British nationals returning from Wuhan, landing at RAF-based Bryce Norton, and the country's first confirmed cases of coronavirus were being identified in York. It proved to be a decisive moment as Professor Ashton was asked by the Crown Prince of Bahrain to join Bahrain's COVID task force and provide hands-on training and knowledge to the country's coronavirus response. Bahrain, alongside Taiwan, South Korea, New Zealand and Singapore, would go on to be one of the few countries who provided a beacon of hope in respect to the handling of the coronavirus pandemic so far. 
How well a population can migrate beyond a pandemic will depend on preparation, resilience, openness, transparency, trust, leadership, communication, cooperation, and crucially, the mobilization of the public to act with evidence and science. Chatting to Professor Ashton was an absolute pleasure. This is an amazing episode and one not to be missed. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and we do hope you enjoy. I've been reading your book, as you can see, um, and it's... Yeah, I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I thought where we are at the moment, it'd be useful on the basis of kind of learning some lessons of, of where we've been from um, the coronavirus when it first started um, to where we are today, kind of giving our audience a little bit of an opportunity to listen in to your expertise and listening to like one of the, the issues that kind of um, form the pandemic response through the likes of history, because I was really interested in the beginning of your book where your first chapter is dedicated to plagues in history. So I thought it was probably the best place to start because there's a lot of discussion at the moment about how the coronavirus pandemic and unprecedented times and pandemics are very unprecedented, but you just need to look back into history and 800 people that perished in China during the um, 2002 outbreak of SARS. You had 17,000 um, from swine flu in 2009 and then also around 32 million people in and around the world from the HIV pandemic that took place in the early 80s. So pandemics are not it's not unprecedented. It's not unique. It's it's something that, as hum- humanity, we've been dealing with for multi multi generations. And um, so, I just wanted to kind of almost address the rhetoric that is often put in in, in the in the common press to say that actually, yeah, pandemics are, are one off. It's it's not, and it's something that I'd imagine as we go forward in the way that we live in respect to rapid urbanisation and also um, you know the global economy and how we live, work, and operate. It's, it's going to be more frequent as well. So on your experience, kind of what would you have to say on those elements? So one of the features of modern life is the disconnection about the, the way we live and how we evolved as animals in the wild and um, the kind of places where we lived uh, in small communities initially and then later on, you know, with the development of cities, drawing people in from the countryside. And it's when you get movements of population that you get the conditions under which viruses and bacteria and other types of organism can cause the problem. Animals in the wild are normally in a balance with the with the germs that, uh, that, that that occupy them, and they, you know, they come to terms with them. We always see outbreaks of disease, epidemics, and pandemics themselves when you have large movements of people. You know, we know, for example, that um, when uh, Captain Cook went off to the Pacific, they took me- measles with them, and the population of Tahiti, which had never been exposed to measles before was decimated. In in fact, um, about half the population died from measles in Tahiti at that time. If you go back to the Bible, you'll you'll read about plagues. If you you read uh, Daniel Defoe's account of um, plague in the Middle Ages, you'll see what devastating uh, impact that uh, these things can have. Being in public health uh, for over 40 years uh, and dealing with a variety 
of infectious things over that time. It's obvious to me that we, we now live in an era when people think infectious diseases are a thing of the past. And we've been led to believe this and we've deceived ourselves because of the huge benefits that came about with the discovery of initially penicillin and then other antibiotics. And, and now we're on the verge of discovering antiviral agents. But these kind of wonders of modern science are, if you like, the icing on the cake of what public health is about. Because public health has to address the determinants, the root causes of diseases taking place in, in human populations. And the, the success of um, traditional public health in the 19th century in dealing with the pandemics that we had of um, Asian cholera that came into the slum areas of the great cities, that well before we even knew what germs were, before the Pasteurs discovered uh, germs, and well before any effective treatment. And the way we, we dealt with them then was by attacking the slum conditions, the poor hygiene, the lack of sanitation, the, the squalid housing that people were living in, very large numbers. I mean, you know, William Duncan, who was the first medical officer of health in Liverpool, and in fact the first one in the world, described the conditions in Liverpool in the early 1840s where there were up to 16, 20 or more people living in a cellar room with an earth floor and perhaps about 12 foot square. Um, this is the root cause of, of a lot of the problems that we face today. And it's as we witnessed at first hand the pandemic of COVID, we've seen how people in overcrowded conditions have been much more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. People who haven't had access to a garden to go out into and or haven't even had a balcony and a flat to get fresh air. Uh, ventilation has been a very important issue in the pandemic, but only lately really recognised because the government and its advisors were fixated on hand washing and didn't realise that actually this was an aerosol um, mm. primarily. So, you know, there are lots of lessons. That, I mean, I could wax lyrical about the experience mm -hmm. of of the influenza pandemic of 1918-19. I think it's um, it's the fact that just to highlight to everybody that they're not unique and the more that as, as civilizations kind of evolve and more, more, more rightly populate, the more closely populated we'll, we'll become. And um, with that, there's a higher likelihood of the likes of more pandemics taking place in the future. So this is where like the whole element of preparedness is and is essential. Um, you, you as a as a regional director of public health for Northwest England for 13 years of, of your career, you've probably seen a lot of the change within the NHS. So on the basis of NHS changes, how do you feel that some of the core changes that have taken place over the, over the course of the last maybe 11 odd, odd years have, have impacted the UK's COVID response from the early days to where they are today? Well, I, I've said before, you know, that we've had successive ministers of health who've behaved as though they've got obsessive compulsive disorder of moving the furniture around every two or three years with no benefit, but with a loss of experienced staff each time they reorganise the health service and a loss of corporate memory. If you're in public health, I mean, I went through seven 
major reorganizations in my period as regional director of public health. It's just unbelievable. Um, ever since the health service was set up in 1948, public health itself has been in a, a less privileged position than it was before the discovery of antibiotics and other you know, modern medicines. People have behaved as though public health is no longer relevant. We had a period when, which coincided actually with the Blair government when public health was taken seriously again and there was investment in public health, um, in, in training people in public health. There was investment in Sure Start and in uh, healthy living centres and so on. And although we'd had warnings about infectious disease with the appearance of HIV and AIDS in the 80s, which went on to kill tens of millions of people world, worldwide. And the, we had the avian flu in the 90s. It was, the wake-up call, first of all, really came with September the 11th because, you know, the terrorists were threatening to use biological uh, yeah. weapons. And at that time, I mean, I was the director of public health in the Northwest, and then I worked in Cumbria for six years. And we did a lot of exercises, a lot of training uh, for biological and terrorist incidents. I mean, I was in Cumbria and we did a big exercise about, you know, a uh, terrorist attack on Sellafield and, and that yeah. kind of thing. But all the time we were aware that we may at some point be faced with uh, a pandemic of a virus that could be as large as the 1918 19 influenza pandemic that killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. And, and we had all these warnings in, in the form, not just of avian flu, but we, we had swine flu, we'd had, we'd had SARS, we'd had BSE, uh, not a virus, but another form of life. And then in the 2013, we had uh, Ebola. Um, we'd had all these things happening. But after the great financial crash in 2008, um, with the change of government in the UK, the government took its eye off the ball and, and a lot of the exercises never happened after that. So there was this one big exercise, training exercise in 2016, Cygnus. Operation Cygnus, that um, identified a lot of weaknesses. But the report on that exercise was never published and the weaknesses were never addressed. And, and we saw what happened then once the a, uh, COVID virus turned up in this country in February of 2020. Yeah, I've, re I've read that report and like the report eventually got published by The Guardian, I believe, in um, the early part of May 2020. And it's, it's true, like half the failures that we see within Britain's COVID response were almost carbon copies to what was actually captured within that report. And then you also have the, you know, the preparedness element. It, you had... Up until, I believe, 2013, it was the preparing for pandemic influenza guidance for local planners. And there's been the change between the local, locally led directors and regional directors to kind of a, a public health centralised model um, that's down based, I believe they're located just um, close to Whitehall. So like... What's your experiences of the of those specific differences that were taking place between kind of a local regional led, led approach um, versus a central approach? John Simone, who was the second medical officer of health in, in this country, he was appointed to the City of London a couple of years after Duncan in Liverpool. But Simone went on to become the first chief medical officer for the country, essentially. 
And Simone developed a model of public health that was based on strong national public health leadership, but also strong local public health. And it's that tradition, you know, we had medical officers of health in the town hall for over 100 years. They were scrapped in 1974 and they reappeared as directors of public health in 1988. And that local level at the borough town, city level, and then the regions which had existed here, they based on the, the wartime medical service in the Second World War was based on the governance arrangements that um, had existed since the Middle Ages, you know, with Lord Lieutenants and all of that, but the number of regions that we, we had right until uh, 2013, and that was the role I had. So we had a robust system but it was based on having a local figurehead in the form of a public health director or previously medical officer of health who could establish a trusted relationship with the public and could practice what I've always described as shoe leather epidemiology, going and knocking on doors, finding out where the infection was, rooting out the local conditions and doing something about it. What we saw in 2013 following the reforms by Andrew Lansley, the Conservative Minister of Health, was an overall centralisation of public health, the creation of this body, Public Health England, that sucked in the resource. Uh, we'd, we'd set up public health observatories around the country to provide local intelligence. They scrapped them. They created a national one-size-fits-all intelligence system so that we, we didn't have the local intelligence. And that was a real weakness once the COVID turned up because the Public Health England uh, characters were sucking in data and then hoarding it and wouldn't give it back to the local directors of public health. The data that they needed to know where the virus was so that they could go and take preventive measures. The story is, is dire of what happened with the centralisation of public health England. You know, a little known thing is that they've been spending hundreds of millions of pounds on a centralised facility at Harlow in, near London, which will suck in even more of the specialist expertise that historically had been re a regional uh, resource um, around the country. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was going to say, because when you, when you compare and contrast with like other countries that have take a more of, of an aggressive action from day one. You, you know, you take the likes of the work that was done over in South Korea or Taiwan or New Zealand in respect to their responses. And also even some of the blueprints that were put forth, like I'm, I'm really, I'm a big fan of the independent sage group and how, how they were put together and created. And, you know, even their blueprint for rebuilding, finding, test, trace and isolate and support. It's a lot of within that document is about local leadership and, lo- and and utilization of local support and knowledge. And it's crazy that like these one size fits all pro- approaches have actually just the, the damage that it's, it's led to is just astounding. And I guess also when the regional model was around, there was a level of competence there. Cause if you kind of look at competence now, like, is it, is it unique? I'm not sure, but you know, like Matt Hancock and Sajid Javid, they both have backgrounds in politics and economics, but what experience do they have in public health? And, you know, they're ultimately, they are, they have the power and authority to respond and um, give, like hold the data and, and um, provide the, almost the, the signing off on some of the UK's processes that we took, that we took on and our approach. Um, is, is that normal? Countries vary in how they go about filling the position of the Minister of Health. And in some countries, it's common to have a public health um, doctor or or specialist as the Minister of Health. Um, This isn't the way we do things in this country. When I was uh, regional director and, you know, was working with ministers in successive governments uh, nationally, I was shocked to realise that when people come into those roles as a minister, they have almost no induction into the role. So overnight, somebody will be appointed to be a minister of health and, and um, you know, they'll be then making it up as they go along. Some of them have got prior experience. I mean, I would identify Tessa Jowell in that when she was the first minister of public health and you know, Tessa got it. She understood public health. She'd worked in social work and she'd, um, you know, psychiatric social work. And she was very familiar with the agenda of public health. And so she got it. But many of the others don't get it. And they've allowed the hospital side of, uh, of medicine and public health to dominate what's gone on. And, we, and public health itself has been neglected. From the neglect side of things, we probably saw that in like the likes of the austerity years, and that you know have kind of pilfered the the actual headcount and the and the budgets as well with respect to the NHS. So that that I guess has been a big issue too. Yeah, I mean, public health was moved into the National Health Service in 1974, and it was moved back again to local government in, in 2013. I was not against that personally. 
But the problem that we faced then was that local governments had forgotten about public health in the intervening decades. And there was a great reluctance to pay the sort of salaries that medically qualified public health people get, you know, on a par with the National Health Service. And so they stripped out a lot of the posts and a lot of the medical qualified ones as soon as they could, went off to work for Public Health England, who were paying the better money. Public Health in England is now multidisciplinary, and the the backgrounds of uh, public health consultants vary enormously. We have um, people from education, from the environment, uh, from nursing, from law even, and so on. And what they have in common is a five-year postgraduate training. But there's always been this reticence to sort out the fact that they ought to be all on the same salary scale and and be properly paid. So local government decimated the numbers. I mean, I, I, in Cumbria, I handed over a very strong public health team, but within a year or two, it was a fraction of the size of what it had been in 2013. The budgets were then cut. Budgets were raided by local authorities to balance the books in other areas. And um, the position of public health director was downgraded. Most of them are actually line managed by the director of social services, for goodness sake. When, you know, the, the role of a public health director is to influence the policies across the whole of the council and beyond Many of the functions that are important to public health are no longer to be found in local governments. I mean, the fire service has mostly gone out to be an independent body. So have the police. Houses are no longer directly managed by and built by local authorities in most cases. Uh, Education, we have local management of schools. A director of public health has to put themselves out and about. They have to establish credibility. They have to be influential. They have to be informed, they have to be articulate. And that's all been neglected now for for quite a long time. So that was a problem. When the first um, cases turned up in UK in the beginning of February 2020, and we had those first people arrive to be quarantined at Arrow Park on the Wirral uh, on the 1st of February 2020, I got called to do an interview with Sky Television, actually. And it, it, it was transpired that the reason they'd turned to me is that they couldn't get anybody from Public Health England to talk to them. And the local directors of public health had been told they were not allowed to talk to the media. Yeah. And as a result of that, I was, you know, interviewed a lot over the months afterwards, the weeks and months afterwards, uh, because they'd been shut up and basically gagged. And what we know from our experience of pandemics and our experience of major public health incidents is that you need to be open and transparent with the public. You need to be frank with the public because often difficult decisions have to be taken, as we've seen with with the shutdowns and everything throughout this. And taking people on this difficult journey means that you have to have trust. And I write about this in my book, Blinded by Corona, You know, the breakdown of trust has been almost complete. It it, it really was eroded massively when it came to the prominent figures not adhering by the rules. You know, when we we had um, members of the royal family, we had footballers having orgies in hotels, we had senior political figures going to visit relatives when they were supposed not to. 
and all the sorts of things that we we now we now uh, are aware of. That that was the beginning of the erosion of trust. And so now, uh, as we come towards the end of the second year of this, people have stopped wearing masks. People have stopped social distancing. It's very difficult to get people to do the right thing now because the trust has gone. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a great report by the Elderman that talks about the trust barometer and how the pandemic has put trust to the test and um, the government and media have actually been the ones that have had the steepest decline. And it's interesting about what you say about putting, uh, in order to get people to work as a as together and almost towards a common goal, you need to be prepared, resilient, open, transparent. Trust is essential leadership, communication with respect to vaccines as well. Like we're going to need to have more international cooperation take place and less hoarding of vaccines in Western worlds rather than kind of, I saw just the other day, the World Health Organization said that some of the targets applied to the African region, for example, is that they said that they're not even going to hit the 10% goal of people vaccinated. And it's crazy. Like in my opinion, and I guess in a lot of people's opinion, we're not all, we're not safe until everybody's like safe and we kind of need to be supporting everybody globally. And it's been kind of this individualistic push and very much chaotic push is what I've I've witnessed within the UK at least. And um, yeah, even when you look at when the first people came back from those 83 people, British nationals came from Wuhan in the um, early part, end of January, early part of February to, as you say, Arrow Park. And then you had the two cases of a Chinese nationals that were found um, within the within York that had tested positive. There was a curious case of a chap called Craig Dillon, which I, I, I'd like to get your input on. But at that very beginning, it was all like quite quite quiet and um you know it didn't seem to get the impetus whilst other nations were you know like what happened with respect to you you were taken over to support Bahrain in respect to their COVID preparedness and you were quite active in in the in the beginning and and 23rd of March we went into lockdown we had those moments from January February and then the end of end of March where there was discussion about will Big Ben like ring for for Brexit and will we have Brexit parties and even remember there was an interview that took place on the 5th of March on this morning when there was a discussion about taking it on the chin with Boris Johnson saying that as a nation we should take it on the chin or he he stood up in I believe February the 3rd and gave that speech at Greenwich talking about how there should be the, the Superman speech like people who are listening to this should take just basically YouTube it Boris Johnson Superman you'll see what I'm on about it it didn't seem to get the impetus that it needed and uh, that and the British people deserved and yeah I just think that there was a massive eye taken off the ball and it it was it was crazy the pandemic, you know, in this pandemic, we were let down by the politicians and we were let down by the government's advisors. We weren't ready for the pandemic because public health had been neglected. The prime minister was sidetracked by his obsession with Brexit, by his personal life. You know, he had a fortnight's holiday in February when he should have been attending COBRA meetings meetings and recognising that we didn't have PPE, we didn't have testing ready, that we really had a lot of catching up to do. So we had a lost month in the February. And then throughout this has been characterised by wishful thinking. We're seeing it again at the moment, the wishful thinking that it'll all be okay again at Christmas. We had it last Christmas when 
They were going to have six days of Christmas instead of 12 days of Christmas, and we finished up with no days of Christmas. It's just been a, a one mistake after another and a failure to learn from experience. You mentioned Bahrain. I was invited to Bahrain to criticise what they were going to do, to criticise it. The Crown Prince uh, Salman had seen me on Sky Television talking about the need for openness and transparency and for planning for the worst and aiming to, to not have the worst happen. And, um, you know, I went out there twice to, um, to go and walk everything, to go around the airport, the seaport, the causeway to Saudi, the hospitals, the camps where the migrant workers live, prisons, everything, and make recommendations back in February. And I, I recommended immediately getting more testing machines, which they did within days, so that they, they, they're right up at the top of the league table of uh, testing per thousand population in the pandemic. They've done really, really well. At that early stage, I recommended that they postpone the Formula One that was due to take place in March, and they did that. I recommended that they release uh, prisoners to stop the overcrowding in the prison. They released almost a 1,000 within a week. And they, they did all sorts of things. They demolished slums and built new uh, apartments for the migrant workers. Amazing proactivity. They built um, a, a Butlin's three- to four-star camp for several thousand people so that they could quarantine people arriving at the airport, having tested them all right at the beginning. And we, we, we went months before we even made any effort to find out where people had been travelling from, we allowed all those thousands of people to come back from skiing in Italy and Austria after February half term in 2020 and go back to their homes around the country without even being monitored, spreading the virus around. Same with Cheltenham, same with the Anfield match with Atletico in March. Just, I'm ashamed at our response and we've seen the impact. We are right among the worst performance in deaths, and we don't know how many people will be suffering with long COVID for years to come. Do you know, in the influenza pandemic in 1918-19, the UK accounted for about 1% of the total number of deaths in the world. Today, with COVID, we're accounting for about 4 or 5% of the deaths in the world. With all the benefits of technology, of medicine, and so on, and we are doing worse than we did 100 years ago. You even see that with cases recently. Like, I believe that there's only America and Russia, both of which America's got a population of about 333 million and Russia's in around 150 million. And we're at 68 million, but we're right up there in respect to new cases. And we're seeing like more deaths. We're seeing more people in hospital again. And yet there seems this unerring silence to address the, the elephant in the room. And it's, as you're saying, as a time that like Bahrain, we're building like new field hospitals and quarantining. And and creating beds and allowing for openness for review and transparency like we we weren't doing any of that we had you know Twickenham for example the rugby was taking place and just it seemed to be just very very chaotic and um, well, we can also see how the failure to get to grips with it early on has, has led to lots of misinformation on social media and to the growth of this anti-vaxxing thing now in Bahrain from the very beginning, they had a, a unit set up 
to respond to any mischievous social media. And they did it systematically from the beginning. So they didn't allow it to, to, to happen to thrive and to grow and be amplified by social media. We should have done that from the beginning and, and to challenge and close down all this nonsense from these anti-vaxxer people. I think it was it was challenging as well because we had government officials saying one thing one day and then flip flipping to another decision the other day and you know we were having like what some of whilst others were taking more of a, an active um, role in responding to COVID we we were talking about washing hands and singing happy birthday so it's it's yeah. um, well, the the government's advisors were too narrowly dra- drawn and that was why in the end the independent stage came into being because. You know, most of these advisors on SAGE are from Imperial University College, Oxford, and London School of Hygiene. They're mostly male, and there's hardly anybody from outside London. There are a few uh, from London and the, and the southeast. There are a few from Edinburgh. As to my knowledge, they, they didn't have a historian. I don't think there's any anthropology there, but understanding how people live their lives is very important. If you can remember how one of the advisors said to the government that the Cheltenham could go ahead, it's not a problem, the Anfield match could go ahead, it's not a problem. People are only at these things for a few hours, and as a football match, because they're all facing the same way, they're not breathing over each other. Totally ignorant of the way in which those of us who go to major sporting events live our lives. Ignorant about what happens when you get thousands of supporters descending on a town for 24 hours or more, out and about, in the pubs, in the bars, in the restaurants, in the, in the concourse areas of the stadium, you know, mixing elbow to elbow and so on. Unbelievable naivety. Presumably, some of these people, if they go to a football match at all, are going in the executive stands, perhaps getting a chauffeur-driven car there, uh, and back again and going straight home after the match. Not the way most football supporters behave when they're going to a big game. And, and like the proof's in the pudding, because you, you take Cheltenham, for example, and there was peaks within the, the area of Cheltenham after the festival and even peaks with the um, Irish fans going back over to Ireland, those peaks over there immediately after correlating to the time period of infection. So when I've looked back at as much information as I possibly could, um, there's a few things in my head that, I wasn't really sure about as to um, whether we were doing or whether we weren't doing. So when we talk about Arrow, for example, or when we talk about um, Stay City, where the first cases in York were found, like were people at that time getting told to isolate? Were they getting um, contested? Were they getting like, what, what was the process there? Because there doesn't seem to be all that much available information about were these people isolating? Were they contract tested? What was the communication to like the Arrow Hospital, for example, in the lead up to um, people turning up? What was happening then? There was a lack of urgency at the beginning. There, there were efforts being made to test and trace uh, early on, but it became rapidly clear that we just didn't have the capacity. And this was what was behind the Deputy Chief Medical Officer saying that testing was not relevant to the British situation. It was something for developing countries, that we had very well-developed public health in this country. Unbelievable, really. I mean, she went on later to say that wearing masks could make things worse, with absolutely no evidence for that at all. We went from contract tracing people. Where where was the facility again, where it was initially all... all 
traced to? Where, where was all the data being taken? Collindale, I think. Is that right? Collindale is historically been where the most specialised laboratories are in England. But because they but had also, an issue with capacity, didn't they? Like by the time they couldn't actually stick to. Yeah. The, well, that was the argument, wasn't it? They couldn't actually stick they, to capacity. They, they didn't mobilise the regional and local laboratories, and they were over dependent on Collindale near London. I just wanted to mention asymptomatic transmission. There's obviously other things that I'd love to talk about, but I'm very conscious of your time. So things like the care home scandal and the test and trace scandals or the VIP lanes that have been set up, much of which is being dealt with by the Good Law Project as we speak. So I encourage you to go and take a look at those. Yeah, the topic asymptomatic transmission just never has really sat well with me because number 10 have often said either in press briefings, media rounds or via Boris Johnson and his ministers, the extent of asymptomatic transmission or spread wasn't known. An example of this was when Johnson said amidst a press conference on Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021, that the biggest false assumption during the pandemic was over this, uh, was over asymptomatic transmission, adding that in retrospect, there are probably many things we wish we had known and many things we wish we had done differently at the time. The element of knowledge is something that I feel must be scrutinised because if you look at asymptomatic transmission, it's been brought up in Sage Minutes in January. It was then again brought up in um, by Sage officials like Jeremy Farrer, head of the Welcome Trust, a member of the Sage Committee, in um, also in late February, saying it was confirmed in February. In March the 6th, mentioned by WHO, um, that 80% of infections are mild or asymptomatic. Dr. Philippa Whitford also said about asymptomatic transmission on the 11th of March and also again on the 22nd of March to Matt Hancock, in which he equally agreed that asymptomatic spread was an issue. And I don't understand the denial behind asymptomatic spread. Is it because it's kind of like the key to unlock all of this secret in the fact that if they admit to asymptomatic spread, then they're admitting culpability for the first few months of doing not very much. What's your thoughts? I think the the story about asymptomatic spread is is just another one of these lines where there's been inconsistency and, you know, misleading comments about it. I mean, when you're dealing with a new virus like this that's been shown early on to be lethal, then you can't make assumptions. You have to be precautionary about it. You have to assume that it may be capable of spread asymptomatically, as we've now found out is to be the case. There was an overemphasis on physical contact to the detriment of the uh, spread by particles from people breathing on each other. It's mind-blowing how throughout this the, the, the efforts have been made to explain things away rather than to face them full on. And it, it's, it, this all goes together with the, the desire to set public health measures against the economy when actually they are totally interdependent. We've seen that the countries that were most assertive in dealing with the virus and taking extreme measures have been the ones who've protected their economy most effectively. And, and to, to actually set public health against the economy has been a false dichotomy which has cost us very dear, as we've seen, we will be paying and our children will be paying uh, for this pandemic for years to come. Just the other day, 
Um, Gordon Brown was on, on TV talking about the World Health Organization saying that there's been 5 million deaths so far and with another 5 million if we don't vaccinate. There's 245 million cases across the world and there's potential to be another 200 million. I've mentioned earlier about the issue in respect to less than 10% of African countries are expected to hit their COVID vaccination goal. The disease in itself looks to me like it's spreading again. It's Cases are going up and like deaths and hospitalizations are going up. Where, how do we get out of this mess and what, what do we do? I'm afraid the mishandling of this at a national level and at an international level as well means that we will be living with the consequences for a long time to come. The World Health Organization does not have the powers that it needs to have to be able to mobilize all the nation states when we have an emergency like this. It's, it's a parallel here with the COP26, which has just taken place, and the need to be able to galvanize proper action between the nation states. That still needs to happen here to, you know, to ensure that all countries, the poorest countries as well as the wealthy countries, get full access to the vaccine. And as the Director General of WHO has said many times, nobody's safe until everybody's safe. At the, at the local level, you know, I'm afraid the virus is continuing to circulate. The Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation has failed in its task to properly advise the government uh, because it was so slow to get behind vaccinating teenagers. Now, the same thing seems to be happening with primary school children, which are be, who are beginning to be vaccinated in some other countries. And there's no particular reason why they shouldn't be. So it, our, our tardiness to do the things that, that have been shown to work elsewhere is stacking up. And as we move towards Christmas again, you know, we can see the prospects of yet more mutations. We've now got a variant of the Delta Indian variant, which is now accounting for about 12% of the new infections. It was only 6% two weeks ago. And this is likely to dominate the spread by the new year. We don't know what that means for severity. What we do know is that it's very likely there'll be more mutations. As long as the virus is, is spreading, there will be more mutations and there may well be another nasty one. So we really need to double down on the precautions. We need to get the vaccination program back up and running properly. We need to head off the anti-vaxxers. They need to be not given the time of day. We need to reinstate mask wearing and social distancing. The ventilation program in the schools, we don't hear much about it at all. A lot of modern schools don't have windows that open. We've really got to sort out the ventilation side, the social distancing, and the government needs to support the schools and the head teachers who've been left stranded to make their own minds up about what to do uh, when they have outbreaks in the schools. It's not looking good. I haven't got a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen next. I hope it all goes away. But I'm afraid in November now, it looks to me as though we've got a very long, hard winter coming.
Yes, I think it, it's about cooperation, isn't it? Like like you mentioned about COP, all of these events when people come together and it's about cooperation and there's a discussion about 12 billion vaccines being produced by the end of the year. So that's enough to vaccine the, vaccinate the entire world. So it's also equally about redistribution being key too. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I've absolutely loved your book. I encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of Blinded by Corona. And yeah, thank you so, so much for your time. Blinded by Corona. Thanks, Peter. Good talking to you. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.